Today we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 5, and you will have a little bit of time for you to get there. Uh, let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Lord, help us to um, hear your voice and to obey what you say, and we want to be attentive to everything that you want us to do. And Lord, today as we talk about risk, um, show us where that might happen for us, where you want us to be risky for you. We pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're beginning this series, uh, 10 Words That Can Change Your Life. And today we're going to talk about, we're going to do one word a week for 10 weeks because two words a week for 10 weeks is too much. And so we're only going to do one a week because one just seems right. And 10 was a kind of a nice number and it's the number in the Bible of completion. And so really what we want to do is, is sort of concentrate on a word that if you would apply it to your life has the potential, the possibility change the trajectory of, of where you go and what you do. And so that's the whole idea around this particular series. I want to start with a story, and it's kind of a legend. I don't know that it's true or not, but it's kind of a cool legend, so we're going to run with it and act like it's true. Um, there was a lady named Nancy Jones, and she lived into her 90s, and it was in kind of a, a Midwestern town. And so, she, you know, it's a small town. I grew up in a town of about 12,000 people, and not a lot of people, but it's enough people. And we had our own newspaper and if you're uh, under 30, um, ask somebody old what a newspaper is, because we had a, a newspaper office, and we had reporters and that kind of thing. And Miss Jones lived to be in her 90s, and she passed away. They were going to write in the newspaper. The, the editor began to think, I'd like to write something about her, because everybody knew her. And so what do we write? So he began to think about, you know, she really never did anything wrong. I mean, she never been in jail, never gotten a speeding ticket, never gotten a parking ticket. So she'd really never done anything wrong, but neither had she ever done anything noteworthy. And so he's kind of, he's struggling to write, to figure out what to write. So he goes down to the, the cafe and he's having a cup of coffee. And at that time, the funeral director comes in and he's like, hey, come here. Let's talk about Ms. Jones for a minute. And he goes, oh yeah, Mrs. Jones, I want to put something really nice on her headstone, but I can't figure out what to put. I don't want to put, you know, Nancy Jones, year dash year. I mean, it's like she deserves more than that, but I don't know what to write. So they kind of talk about it a little bit, and they came up with a plan. And the editor says, okay, I'm going to go back to the, to the uh, newspaper office, and the first reporter I come upon, I'm going to ask him to write this for me. And so he does, and he goes back to the newspaper office, and there's a sports editor, and he says, um, Nancy Jones, you remember Nancy Jones? Yeah, well, can you write something about her? And he goes, yeah, I can do that. So this is what the sports editor came up with. And evidently, as legend has it, somewhere there's a tombstone in the Midwest with this written on it about Miss Nancy Jones. Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. Her life had held no terrors. She lived alone and she died alone. No runs, no hits, no errors. That, that is... Um, it's simultaneously funny and sad because... Um, who would want to give their one and only life for that? You know, didn't, didn't take any risks, didn't make any changes, didn't do anything. Didn't, didn't, I live remar unremarkably. Now, take this and compare it to what Paul, Paul was a great Christian and he wrote much of the New Testament and he lived for Jesus and at the end of his life he was able to write this, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. I mean, if you had to pick between the two, which would you pick? Because you get this one life to do something with. And so today we're going to talk about, in this series, risk. I'm not talking about that stupid risk that you take, that, that's reckless and dumb, the kind that we took when we were young people. I mean, I'm a, 
I was a 16-year-old boy and a 17-year-old boy and an 18-year-old boy, and we did really, really stupid things. And even when I got older, you know, we did dumb things. And I look back on my life, and I think to myself, it is by the grace of God that I'm alive because of some of the stuff, and it is by the grace of God that I'm not in prison having prison ministry. I mean, it's, it's by the grace of God. Because a lot of life is about not getting caught. And, and so we did really risky, stupid things. I'm not talking about that today. What we're going to talk about is, I believe you can make an argument from Scripture that God wants us to take risks, godly risks. Not foolishness, not silliness, not just being dumb, but God places in our lives these opportunities to do something significant. And Peter Marshall was the chaplain for the Senate many, many, many years ago, back when the Senate wasn't insane like it is now. And uh, he was the chaplain, and he said this, and I just love this quote, because he said, Christians today are like deep-sea divers wearing these suits designed to plumb the depths, and we're marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. And what he was saying is, we're, we're built for something bigger than what we're doing. We're designed, we're suited, we're well suited to, to plumb the depths, to do amazing things. And here's what we need to know, is that risk and spiritual growth nearly always go together because God wants us to grow spiritual muscles. He wants us to develop and mature and we, we, he challenges us, he, he challenges us to be risky so that we can depend on him more and to grow more in our faith. And the churchy word for this is called discipleship, or, or being a disciple. And we get this idea, well, being a disciple is I've got to believe certain things so I can go to heaven when I die. But I think we're missing the mark on what discipleship really is. In fact, I found this definition, I really like it. A disciple is someone who says, like Jesus, I'll pursue God's will no matter where it leads or what it costs. Now that, that is really powerful. Because how many of us, Just I mean, it's just us in this room right now, how many of us would really, are really willing to say, I will pursue God's will no matter where He leads me and no matter what it costs me? Because then you have to think, okay, what if it led me not to comfort? Because I'm comfortable, you know? I'm chill. I, I like this. What if God challenged you to not be comfortable? To, to step out of comfort into discomfort. To go someplace you don't know. What if he asks you to go somewhere else? Or what if he asks you to risk your reputation? Or what if he asks you to risk your finances? Or what if he asks you to risk a relationship? Or what if he asks you... I mean, there's a lot of risks you can take. Are we willing, as disciples of Jesus, if, if we're going to be like Jesus... Because look, Jesus modeled this. We used to sing that song... He came from heaven to earth, you know, to show the way from the cross to the grave. He went to a place. He came from heaven to earth. He went where God led him, and it cost him everything. So he models this. So this idea of risk. A disciple says, I'm willing to go where you want me to go. I'm willing to do what you want me to do, whatever it costs. And we see it in Jesus' disciples. That's why I, I say, biblically, you can make an argument because you see it over and over again. Let's take Simon Peter. Okay. Jesus is a rabbi. It's really, really a cool thing to follow a rabbi. And so if you got to be a disciple of a rabbi, it's super big honor back in Jesus' day. 
And so there's a rabbi named Jesus, and he meets a guy named Peter, and Peter listens to him preach. And one day, Peter goes home and he says to his dad, who has a fishing business, and Simon Peter works for him, because that's what Jewish men did. You went to work for your dad, and you did what your dad did. And so it's likely that Simon Peter's grandfather and great-grandfather were fishermen, because the business would be handed down from generation to generation. Can you imagine the conversation between a young man, and Simon Peter was probably in his 20s, a young man in his 20s going to his father and saying, Dad, I'm going to follow a rabbi, and I'm giving this up. This thing that you've built, that you intend for me to take over, this legacy of yours that you have planned all of your life, from the day I was born, I was going to be part of this business and take this business over when you retired or when you were gone. I'm giving this up for this rabbi. Can you imagine that conversation? And we know Peter was married because the Bible tells us he had a mother-in-law. You can't have a mother-in-law without having a wife. That would, that's, that would be like hell. Uh, so, uh, 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 horrible. So... We know he had a wife. Can you imagine that conversation? Honey, <laughs> I got some news. I got some news today. Uh, there's a guy named Jesus. He's a rabbi. I'm going to follow him. And I'm going to follow him. I mean, I, he, he went where Jesus asked him to go, and, he, and he, it cost him dearly to follow. And that's what disciples do. See, here's the thing about discipleship. And risk. Sometimes we avoid risk because it, it's scary. I don't, I'm, I'm scared of some stuff, just honestly. I don't like to go to the dentist. I enjoy not pain. And so uh, often when I go to the dentist, I don't know if anybody else has had this experience, but sometimes dentists cause me pain. Um, and so I don't like to go. I mean, it just, it just is what it is. Uh, I don't like when I'm driving to drive by a police officer. I don't like it. Not because I've ever done anything wrong. I pretty much haven't. But, um, or at least I haven't been caught. Anyway, um, I don't like it because it, it gives me fear. Like there's fear involved. I, I don't like to go in certain parts of big cities because I'm afraid of getting shot. Uh, there are reasons. I don't like spiders for fear. I don't like snakes because I'm afraid. I don't like heights because I'm afraid. And I don't often like risk because I am afraid. Here's what we need to understand. Discipleship is often a choice between comfort and risk. You, you've heard the expression. Here's what the problem for us is, as Americans. We get comfortable. Um, many of us fall into this sort of routine, called, it's called being a couch potato. You, you probably know what the definition of this is. That's you go to work, and you come home, and you sit on the couch, and you grab the remote, and you veg out, and so that's called being a couch potato. And some of us in Christian life, we're, we're sort of, uh, in our case it would be chair potatoes, we're pew potatoes. We, we come to church, and we're comfortable, and we like comforts. And there's even theology out there that says, hey, you're supposed to always be healthy and you're supposed to always be well and that's God designed for you. Except the problem is Jesus never says this. In fact, Jesus is all the time challenging people to be risky, to be uncomfortable. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And one time he says this, the most uncomfortable thing you can ever do is, is take up a cross. 
And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must stop being a couch potato, must stop being a chair potato, must stop being a pew potato. If you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And taking up a cross is painful and risky. And it's also the mark of a disciple. So today, let's look at this story. It's about a guy named Naaman. It's one of my favorite biblical stories. I love this story. I'm not going to give you every verse. There's some other stuff in here, so you might want to read it for yourself later. But we're going to be in 2 Kings, and we're going to be in chapter 5, and we're going to talk about a guy named Naaman. And so let's start. Truths about godly risk, because I think he's going to challenge us to be risky. You're going to hear this, and now you're going to be responsible for it. And maybe you should thank me, and maybe you should say thanks a lot. I don't know. But I believe God challenges us to do more than we're doing often. And so we're built for risk. In fact, throughout Scripture, God challenges us to take godly risk. Let me tell you about the Israelites. God's chosen people, they go to Egypt, they're enslaved, they're delivered. A guy named Moses, you may have seen the movie, you know, the documentary, uh, the Ten Commandments. And there are these, uh, these ten plagues and God miraculously delivers the Israelites out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they wander in the wilderness for 40 long years. And they're about to go in, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they're about to go into the promised land. There's a guy named Joshua. He's taken over because Moses is gone. Okay, Now, these guys have no training, no military training. And here's the deal. They're going to go into the promised land, but it's not like it's not occupied. They're going to go into a land that's occupied. There are people who have fortified cities and armies who are trained. And you've got a ragtag bunch of nobodies. No training, no military. They're trained in surviving in the wilderness for 40 years. This is their training. And God says something to them that should speak to your heart, because it speaks to my heart. This is one of the coolest verses in Scripture. Be strong and courageous. Because you're not always strong. Sometimes we're weak. In fact, it says, uh, don't be afraid. Because I think he says this because sometimes we're afraid. And and he says, don't be discouraged. You know why he says that? Because sometimes we're discouraged. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Be strong and courageous. And what he's saying is, you, you, you is possible for us. It's possible for me to be strong and courageous. God doesn't command us to do something that we can't do. Be strong and courageous. You know why he's saying it? Because we can be strong and courageous. And if I'm in a military that's never done anything, and as far as we know has never trained, and I'm going to go into a land where there are fortified cities and armies who know how to fight, God better be with me or I'm going to get crushed. You talk about risk. I mean, it would have been a lot easier just to hang out. But they didn't hang out because God says, go. Sometimes he'll tell us to go. Take a risk. So today we're going we're to unpack this story of Naaman. Let's just sort of start. Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. All right, so this is like a... a, 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 a it's not like an area, but it's sort of a kingdom. Um, it's a kingdom. So it would be like the king of uh, Canada. Okay, so Naaman was the commander of an army, the king of Aram. The Aram is a, is a place. 
He was a great man and in his sight uh, of his master and highly regarded. By the way, if you're going to work for the king, it's nice if he likes what you do. And this is what the case is here. Because through him, the Lord had given him victory. Um, he was a valiant soldier. Now, he's got a little chink, however, in his armor. He's got leprosy. And leprosy caused deformity and nerve damage and there was no cure. And you were, uh, you were religiously unclean. It wasn't a sin to have leprosy but it really kind of messed up your social life. Because it was highly contagious, you really couldn't hang out with anybody. So we got a guy who has great vocational comfort. He's, he's killing it in his job. He is a great commander, except in his personal life, in his physical life, he's really struggling because he is a leper. And by the way, leprosy would always lead to death because it just it messed, it messed you up. And so he's got this disease that was absolutely, completely incurable. No, nobody got cured of leprosy. You, you see it in the Old Testament a couple of times. This guy does get cured. We're going to read that in a minute. Um, Moses had a sister. Her name is Miriam, just like my wife, and she was cured of leprosy those two times. And then Jesus comes along and he cures people of leprosy. It was super interesting. Not in your notes, so you had to look at me now. Sorry. Sorry. Can't even look at, don't look at your phone. You got to look at me. Now, I'm going to tell you something you don't know. There were people in Israel who were looking for the Messiah when Jesus came along. Okay, there were years and years and years of looking for the Messiah. So it's not like Jesus wasn't the first guy to claim to be the Messiah, and he certainly wasn't the last. But there were guys, and they would say, okay, when the Messiah comes, this will happen. And the things, one of the things is, when the Messiah comes, he will be able to heal people born blind. Because nobody got healed of blindness. Nobody. Nobody got over blindness. So they would say, okay, if a guy comes along and he's able to heal somebody of blindness, then he has got to be the Messiah. That, that's one indicator. Another indicator, if, if there's a guy that comes along and he is able to heal people through God's power of leprosy, we've never seen that. That just doesn't happen. It's got to be the Messiah. And so you read these stories in, in the New Testament about Jesus healing Bartimaeus, you know, the blind Bartimaeus who was born blind. It's an amazing story. And there would be people who saw that and they would have known, oh my word, he'd have to be the Messiah. That's why, that's why people were talking about Jesus. And he healed lepers. And that's why there was kind of a buzz around Jesus, because nobody was able to heal leprosy. Okay, so you have Naaman, and he's a leper, and nobody is able to heal leprosy. So he's in kind of a bad way. Now, Aram is this country this region, uh, and Israel is a country, and they're not on good terms with one another. They kind of raid one another. They, they're, they're not in full-fledged battle, but they certainly are in conflict with one another. That's important for the next part of the story. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone into and taken captive a young girl from Israel. They had kind of gone into that area and taken this girl. And she served Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. This story is full of risk. <laughs> Just so you know. If you're a servant in your master's house and you promise him that he can be healed of an unhealable, incurable disease, that's risky. That's hyper risky. And so she says, dude, all you got to do is go see Elisha. From back home, he can heal you. Now, 
I did, I'm not going to include these, these verses in this text, uh, in, in our talk today. But the king of Israel hears this and he says, no, 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 no. We don't have nobody that can do that. That's kind of the translation in the Hebrew. Nobody can do that. And Elisha says, let him come on. I'd like to talk to him. Super interesting. So, when you're desperate, you've heard this expression, desperate times demand desperate measures. And Naaman is willing to go. He is willing to go. So this is what he does. Super interesting verse. So Naaman went with his horses, plural, and his chariots, plural, and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. He pulled up with his entourage. I mean, he showed up and he showed out. He, he didn't roll up in a hoopty. No, no, no. You know, when Jesus entered Jerusalem when he was about to be crucified at the Passover, he rode in on a donkey. It's a matter, it, it is a symbol of, of humility and peace. <laughs> Not Naaman. Naaman is the Beyonce of, of the uh, military world. You know, there's a big fight last night, right? Uh, McGregor and Jim. And uh, they had this big fight. And, you know, boxers, they're, they're noted for that. <laughs> By the way, why does a boxer need a bodyguard? I, I don't get it. Anyway, all right. So the boxer comes in and he's got the big cape, you know, the big robe. And, and you know, they're doing this. And, and uh, I know he's a CFA or a QRB fighter. I know, I know that. He's not really a boxer. I get it. I get it. I get it. Anyway, he comes in and, um, and he's got people, got his entourage. And that's a big deal. And so this is the picture of Naaman. He doesn't pull up and quietly knock on the door. He shows up. I mean, he wanted... This is a power play. What Naaman needed Elisha to know was that he was somebody. Not some chowderhead from up the street. Uh, I'm not some... I'm not your homie. I'm Naaman. I am the man over in Aram. I mess people up. If you don't do what I say, guess what's going to happen to you? I'm going to mess you up. That's what he wanted him to know. This was strictly a power play. Okay. Now, if someone prominent showed up at your home, let, let's say, I don't know, let's, let me think. Um, who, who um, Cam Newton. He's kind of bombastic. Maybe Cam shows up at your house. He knows you're a fan because you don't love America's team, the uh, Dallas Cowboys. Uh, rather, uh, you pull for some other chump team. Anyway, that's okay. That's okay. And he, he shows up at your house with his entourage, and he comes to the door. What do you do? You greet him, right? Oh, Cam, come in. Can I offer you um, a cola? You know, do you, would you like some coffee? Uh, come on in. You would greet him because he, he's important. Or it could be anybody. Uh, if it was a government official, like if the Secretary of State showed up, or uh, whoever, uh, you would be courteous enough to go out and greet him. L- look at this next verse is dripping with coolness. Elisha sent a messenger. Time out. He didn't go out. Now, listen. <laughs> Naaman shows up and he is basically saying, I am somebody. And Elisha sends a messenger and says, no, you're not. 
doesn't even go out to talk to him. Incredible. Sends a messenger to say, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. <laughs> Time out again. This is a warrior. Naaman is a bad boy. He, he is, he's like, he's like a, a Navy SEAL. He's used to making, blowing stuff up, making th- bad things happen to people. What he's asked to do is go dip himself it's, it even sounds like a sissy thing to do. Go dip yourself in the river. That's kind of what it sounds like. It's not manly. It's not a manly task. He wants a warrior's task. Go get me the heads of 45 Philistines. That's, that would have been a task. Bring the head of 45 Philistines and you'll be healed. No, no. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be cleansed. Now, I'm just going to, let's poll the audience. How many of you think that um, Naaman took this well? Yeah, that's right. You're right. You're intuitive. In the Hebrew, the next line is, and you have to be able to read Hebrew, uh, Naaman says, oh, no, he didn't. It's in the Hebrew. It's in the Hebrew. So let's look. The second truth about godly risk is, You have to start small. God will ask us not to do great things particularly to begin with. He'll ask us to do small things to begin with. Look at this verse. Naaman went away angry. (laughs) Well, who could have seen that coming? Uh, He went away angry and he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me because I am somebody. I'm not some chump. I'm not some loser. I showed up with an entourage, for goodness sakes. He said, I thought... He'd come out surely to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord and wave his hands over me and the spot would be cured. God didn't act the way Naaman thought he should. God's messenger didn't act the way Naaman thought he should. In fact, I believe he rolled up in a big entourage because he wanted to show that he was resourced. Naaman basically saying to Elisha, look, I've I've got resources. Do I need to offer ten bulls as a sacrifice? I can do that. Look at at what I got. I've got tons of stuff. I can do about anything you need me to do. Ask me something big. Now, the whining is not over. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than this chumpy river in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off. The word isn't mad. He went off in a what? Rage. I mean, the brother was messed up by this. Because he had a notion that it was going to be some spectacular event that led to his healing. Super interesting there. Here's what I've noticed in life. I've met people who want to do something great for God. They're just not willing to do little things for God. They want to be really, really important for God. They just don't care to be unimportant for God. And what I know is this. God won't ask us to do great things before we're willing to do small things. Jesus put it this way. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Little risk is a testing ground of what God really wants you to do. You know, Dipping is for children. Dipping in a river, that's what kids do. Kids go play in the river. 
And I think Naaman was saying, I'm a warrior. I'm bad. I'm not going to go belly flop in the river like some chump. I'm not going to do that. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us over and over, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. Jesus said, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, it's a child's task. It's a first step to getting you to the next place. Because here's the problem with doing little stuff. Doing little stuff goes unnoticed. Doing little things, people don't always notice that. But back in 2015, April 19th, there was a baseball game. The Orioles were playing, oh, let's see who it was, the White Sox. It was famous because there were no fans allowed in the stands. There were race riots, you'll remember this, it was a few years ago. And they didn't let anybody in. And can you imagine playing a baseball game in front of nobody? Because that's what happened. And sometimes when God asks us to do little things, it feels like we're playing the game in front of nobody. And there's nobody to cheer and there's nobody to encourage. And we feel like we're out there all by ourselves. And God didn't respond the way Naaman thought he should. And so he walks away in a rage. And here's what I know about God. He doesn't have to explain himself to me. God asks us to do little things sometimes. And we can be at a place where we say, God, whatever, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'll do that. And it might be super unimportant. And if God asks us to do it, that's what we should do. And we go back to our verse. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged, for the Lord will go with you wherever He leads you, whatever He asks you to do. This is super important. You have to trust God. A few months ago, my buddy Tim Kemp, Tim's in the back back there, took me flying in his airplane. It's not this one, but it's kind of like this one. Is it close? It's, a, it's got wings just like yours. Uh, okay. Now, here's the thing about flying. It's different than driving in a couple of really, really important aspects. If you're driving and your car stalls, what do you do? You pull over, right? If you're flying and your plane stalls, what happens? You die. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's bad. So you have to go through pre-flight stuff. I know this because I watched the television show Airplane Repo, okay? I've watched so many Airplane Repos, I'm practically a pilot myself. Uh, So... I know what you're supposed to do. you got to check the gas to make sure there's no water in the gas tank. And you run your hand around across the, the, the wing uh, to check for bugs. And, um, yeah, I'm a pilot. Oh, okay. Uh, and you check, the, um, you check the flappers to make sure they flap. And you check the um, rudder to make sure it ruds. And you check the wings to make sure they're attached. Kind of shake them, make sure they don't fall off. Now, I watched him do that stuff because because he knows what he's doing. He's flown a few times. He's got some experience. I got in the airplane because I trusted the pilot. And God will ask us to do stuff, and we have to answer the question, 
do I trust the pilot? And basically, Naaman in this story was saying, that's silly. It's not what I thought he would ask me to do. Which leads us to a second act of bravery. First act was a little slave girl. The second act was also slaves, by the way. Crazy interesting to me. It, it kind of says to me, it doesn't matter your station in life. God will, will ask you to do something risky. So there's some boys in his army. They risk, they risk themselves. Naaman's servants went to him and he, they said, My father, very respectful. If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? So how much more when he tells you to wash and be clean? I mean, if he asked you to go get the heads of 45 Philistines, you would have done that. So this is a simple task. How about you swallow your pride, and any time you challenge a prideful person to swallow their pride, that's risky. Why don't you swallow your pride, and let's see how it goes. I mean, what do you have to lose? Which brings me to the third point. Sometimes taking a risk for God will involve your reputation. What he had to lose was his reputation. What if he goes... What if he goes to that stupid river and he dips seven stupid times and nothing happens? And he's going to look like an idiot. And he didn't want to look like an idiot. And he had to choose, am I willing to take a risk and even risk my reputation? This is a picture right here. This guy's name is Ken Elzinga. It's a cool name. He's a little older now, but when he was in his 20s, he took a job as a professor at the University of Virginia. He's been a professor there for over 40 years now. And when he first came on staff, some of the other professors warned him. One in particular said, you cannot let your faith be too prominent because if you do, it might stifle. It will likely stifle your advancement in the university. You, you won't be able to climb the ladder. And Elzinga said he understood that and a few months into his tenure there, he had just started, he was kind of a new Christian, and he agreed to speak at a Christian organization, and they put a flyer up with his face on it. And he saw it, and he was stunned, and I'm like, ugh, I don't think I want to do this. So he took it down, and he went home. And God kind of wrestled with him all night. And the next morning, he woke up, and he went and put that back up. And he said, he said, basically, I'm not going to live in the fear of anybody else. I'm not going to live trying to get tenured and not live out my faith. By the way, he, he's been uh, at UVA for about uh, four decades, has won uh, Professor of the Year multiple times. See, God will sometimes challenge us to risk our reputations. So Naaman went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a little boy. And we take little risks and sometimes it will lead to great rewards. And here he took, a, I mean, it didn't take much to do this. And he went out and he took a little risk, but it was with faith. And the Bible tells us plainly that without faith, faith led him to take a risk. He believed that God could do it. What did he have to lose? And he did it. Which leads me to the last thing. Who gets credit is important. Remember, remember, right in our story, Naaman came. He shows up, comes, shows up in a uh, in his entourage, and Elisha doesn't even come out to him. And and now 
watch what happens, because this is really, really important. Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him, and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. See, if Elisha had come out, it might have been that Naaman would have said, uh, There is no prophet in all the world except for Elisha. And Elisha didn't want that to happen, and he made certain that God got the credit. And God will challenge us to risk something. I mean, really, let's end with a question, but I'm going to wrap it up with this. The question is, how might God be asking you to risk? I mean, it might be financially. Maybe financially God is saying, you got re- you're resourced, and there are people in need, and you should give. You should help somebody. And remember we talked about a few weeks ago, just because you can't help everybody doesn't mean you shouldn't help somebody. And maybe God puts somebody in your life and, and he's whispering to you, you should take a risk and help this person. Per- perhaps it's professionally like Elzinga did. He, he risked his reputation at work professionally. Maybe at your job there are people who tell jokes that are inappropriate and you should just say, I don't want to hear that. I'm not into that. That's, I'm going to walk away. Because that's not who I am. Because I follow Christ, I don't want to be that. Perhaps, perhaps God is asking you to risk something just real little, just real tiny. You're going to go and you're going to have lunch someplace. And there's going to be a server that comes and, and, and waits on you. And maybe they bring your food and maybe God is saying to you, ask him if you can pray for him. And you say to your server, you know, we're about to pray for our food and we appreciate your good service. Do you have anything we can pray for? I mean, do you need us to pray for you? I've done this countless times. I have never had anybody say no. Now, sometimes they'll say, I don't go to church. I mean, they give you a really interesting, you get interesting conversations around here. And, and they, I've had, I had one girl say, I don't believe in prayer, but you can pray for me. Okay, what do you want me to pray about? It's uncomfortable sometimes. It's kind of risky. But what if God is saying to you, hey, that, you should get in the habit of that. You, you should try that. This might change the whole trajectory of your life. Maybe you become much more of a prayer person. I, I don't know the magnitude of the risk. I just know this. God will challenge us to risk because he wants us to grow. God will challenge us to risk because he wants us to grow. I've got a 12-year-old daughter, and I ask her to do stuff around the house sometimes that I need her to learn some things. And my wife will, will challenge her to do some things. We'll let her do some stuff because we need her to learn some things. And God challenges us to risk because he needs us to grow into maturity as a disciple. This... This is how God works. So now you know. And and this week, and maybe today, and maybe right now, God is saying, I'd like you to take this little risk. Because usually he starts you off small. And I can't wait. In a few weeks, maybe you're going to come back and you're going to say, Pastor, that message about risk, I heard God say this, and I did this, and this is what happened. If you have those, tell me. I'd love to hear them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us enough not to leave us the way we are. Some of us 
we're walking in sin for a long time and you brought us out. And some of us here today may still not be a follower of yours. And you can change that today too. We know that you can do that for us. And we know that for those of us who are your followers, you don't want us to be comfortable and complacent, but you want us to risk. Lord, help us to do it and honor you. Help us to do it in an honorable way that honors you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.